Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco. This is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and their impact on the information security industry. My name is Mike Shima, and I'm excited to introduce today's guest, pen tester, author, and entrepreneur, Georgia Wiedemann. Georgia wrote the InfoSec bestseller, Penetration Testing, a hands-on introduction to hacking. She's currently a founder of Shavira Inc., a security startup that specializes in mobile security testing and Bulb Security, a consulting firm that specializes in security assessments and training. Much of her work focuses on mobile and IoT exploitation and assessing the risk of mobility in the enterprise and the effectiveness of preventative security tools at detecting and stopping attacks. She's an engaging speaker who gave her first presentation at ShmooCon several years ago and has since added premier conferences like Black Hat and keynoting the OWASP AppSec Europe to her resume. Most recently, she conducted a hands-on exploit development class at the inaugural DEF CON China. Welcome to our podcast, Georgia. Well, thank you for having me. Awesome. You know, I, I introduced you first with the book, and I think that's perhaps how most people might recognize your name from that penetration testing book. It's been a, a, a fantastic reference for people getting into the industry, studying for their OSCP, and so on. And I think, too, recently you announced embarking on a second edition. Let's start with that. What can we look forward to from your writing? Well, uh, naturally, it is going to be a lot of updated material. The targets are going to be updated. You know, just simple example, you know, the MSO8067 is the first, like, this is how you use Metasploit. It's going to be, you know, Eternal Blue or Eternal Romance. So, you know, we have the NSA to thank for, you know, that. You know, that may have been the thing that was holding me back from writing the second edition was that, you know, it's like, how do you not do a, like, simple remote exploit? But the NSA gave us two or a few, actually, in their dump. Um, also, I learned a lot from the first book about, like, what did and didn't work for readers, what did and didn't stand the test of time. So, you know, I'm able to, this time, you know, understand that going in and, and really make it, you know, a better book. Um, so, in addition to just being new stuff, um, just a book that, works better for the readers. I mean, also, you know, time has passed and there's, you know, more opportunities in terms of like abilities to have like tie-ins with online labs and, and, you know, once you've worked through the book, continue working, like I can continue putting new exercises out and, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to be the next OSCP or anything, but, you know, allow people to continue, you know, working with it and, and not, I mean, a, a lot of people, you know, having to set up the Windows labs themselves, you know, that was hard. So giving them the option of, you know, just kind of clicking the button and having the lab appear online, you know, we're trying to do all those tie-ins just to make it, you know, a more, I guess, modern experience while still being, you know, an awesome book for beginners. <laughs> no, that sounds great. It, yes, it definitely sounds like we've moved on from putting, a, you know, all the tools on a CD, you know, glued to the back cover of the book or something like that. Yeah, that sort of stuff. I mean, I have a lot of those books, you know, mm -hmm. still, and it's like one, you don't even have a CD drive anymore. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I always see like people saying like, you know, Hacking the Art of Exploitation, which is a really good book, mind you, you know, in terms of like, you know, buffer overflow and memory corruption kind of stuff, as old as it is, it's a very good book. But I mean, the virtual machine that comes with it, like the VMware and 
and virtual boxes of today just can't read it. Like even if you can get the CD mounted through some external drive. So, I mean, it is very difficult just in general as an author to, to keep those sorts of things current. And I learned a lot about that the first time around. And, you know, that's probably the thing that I'm trying to do the best at this time around is make it so that it is, you know, easier for the reader who picks it up you know, a year or two later after it comes out, especially since, you know, it does get published in a lot of different languages, you know, we're out mm -hmm. in five languages and, you know, some of those people didn't get it until much later. So they didn't even have a chance to pick it up and pre-order, you know. But, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that, that kind of stood out to me was, you know, as we've chatted and as kind of, you know, um, reading about your work online is that you mentioned too that you've been learning a lot. But um, clearly with the book, you're also sharing a lot of that learning, you know, doing that training in the work you do with your startups, as well as educating. And part of that has also been giving presentations over the years from starting at ShmooCon to, you know, your most recent, you know, keynotes. So that's a pretty, you know, impressive tra trajectory there. I'm curious, looking back, what was it like to have your first presentation and how would you compare that to doing a keynote, both in just how you approach giving presentations or you know, what you focus on and how you create them? Well, I think, you know, looking back on it, it was naive and rather arrogant that like the first thing I ever submitted ever to a CFP was to ShmooCon which as many listeners probably know is kind of one of the bigger deal cons. It doesn't have a ton of tracks, you know, it's not like there's nine tracks and a million speakers. So it's like kind of, you know, an elite group, dare I say. So it was a really long shot. And, you know, I didn't you know, expect to get in with my weird little text message botnet project. <laughs> um, but then, you know, everyone on Twitter was like, grouching about how they were security rock stars and how dare ShmooCon reject their talk. And I hadn't gotten an email yet. So I was just kind of like sitting there all day, like, I wonder if I got in, um, which is, is what happened. Um, and I practiced that talk like literally a hundred times at my local <laughs> hackerspace. And then my computer crashed on stage. Like the video's out there, like you can find it. I recovered well, mind you, but- <laughs> That's lucky. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had a backup demo video, which, you know, was good. Always bring a backup demo video, you know, try and do your demos live, but always bring a backup and make sacrifices to, you know, whatever deities you believe in about live demos. Um, but the biggest change for me you know, going from that to, you know, you know, suddenly being like, oh, huh, you want to go to Malaysia? Well, sure, why not? Um, and then starting to do keynotes and then, yeah, kind of as a side note, you know, the first keynote I did, it was uh, B-Sides Jackson, so in Mississippi, which is actually where I'm from. So it was kind of mm -hmm. cool to be like the keynoter at the first B-Sides Jackson, which, you know, I can't say for sure, but may have been the first security conference in Mississippi. It wouldn't surprise me but I'm not sure that that's a fact. I could be wrong. But anyway, like, I actually, like, didn't actually realize that keynotes were supposed to be more broad in general. And <laughs> I did my, my usual technical talk. So naturally, you know, I kind of had to adjust accordingly, according to my audience, which, you know, also going through, like, starting a startup and going through an accelerator, you know, I had mm -hmm. to learn how to talk to more business side people and, 
you had to do it in like seven minutes and the audience isn't necessarily quite that technical and the stakes are a bit higher than someone saying Georgia sucks at speaking on their review <laughs> card, you know, and right. like, well, they invest in your company or buy your product or something. So I had to be, I guess, a lot more flexible in what I'm able to do, which has been fun and interesting. I mean, I really enjoy public speaking. So, you know, it's a, and again, it's a, I mean, it's a lot of practice. I'm not going to say I practice every talk I give a hundred times because I don't have that much time, but you know, I try and get on a stage and, you know, work it out rather than, you know, freewheel it. Yeah, I think that, that that sounds like a great takeaway, both in the sense of um, just diving in, throwing that, you know, you said it maybe it's, it, it's arrogant just to submit to a CFP, but it could also just be everybody's got to start somewhere, right? So just throw that CFP in there to get started. And uh, it sounds like then practice so that you can actually recover when, when, when the demo, when the demos go wrong. What about um, the content or, you know, maybe this, maybe we could broaden this a little bit, you know, the a focus on like a, like you were saying, I think it was the, the text messaging botnet to you're now a bit more focused, well, I guess still in the mobile area, but maybe on mobile security, would there be themes that have changed over the years, even with the themes that you've um, written about in your pen test book between, you know, and with the second edition that you'd be looking at, or is, you know, security still kind of the same in the sense that we're struggling with basics and there's nothing new under the sun? How, you know, how bad is the world out there? Should we be cynical or is there hope on the horizon? Well, you know, that's a, it's a hard question really that I mean, I really believe that, you know, all this next generation ways that we use technologies, you know, obviously they're a clear and present danger, you know, be it be cloud-based outsourcing our email to Google apps or our lead generation to Salesforce or, you know, any kind of outsourcing to something that we don't control the security of, you know, we are increasingly coupling more of our business and personal lives to mobile devices that where we're not truly the master Certainly the enterprise isn't. Um, technologies coming into our homes and offices, like smart TVs, they're listening, smart assistants, or even, you know, mm -hmm. making calls on behalf of what we're saying behind our back, you know, light bulbs with IP addresses, you know, the whole deal. And, you know, it's increasing resilience or reliance rather on, you know, industrial controls that are so fragile that they can't be security tested. Um, they'll just fall down and mm -hmm. they continue to prove susceptible to malware that's a little more sophisticated than that which plagues unpatched Windows desktops. So, I mean, certainly it's bleak. You know, <laughs> I see the same stuff on my pin test. I see, you know, MSO8067, which if mm -hmm. you're familiar with Microsoft patches, that's from 2008. You know, I see this all the time. You know, I see default passwords on things. I see, you know, stuff that's this really basic constantly but I think there's hope in that you know people hopefully at least are realizing that you know all these big companies that are getting breached are you know we're very quick to like point the finger and say you know off with the head of the CISO or whatever mm -hmm. but I mean as a general rule these people are not just like you know twiddling their thumbs what's happening is that vendors are coming in and saying if you install this fancy blinky light box on your network everything will be okay and you know they're the expert at the security company so 
you know, why should they not believe that, you know, this vendor is telling the truth? Think, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, you know, as smart technical security people, you know, being able to learn how to speak business and being able to compete with those snake oil people to, you know, make, make ourselves heard that, you know, just because it says on the back of the box that it can stop all attacks against your website until you actually like have a penetration tester, red teamer, you know, whatever you want to call it, try to break into your website and see whether it actually stops it. You don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think a little bit there too. I, I try, I try to um, put that terms of, you know, we don't necessarily need to, you know, throw the CISOs under every single bus out there. And even I kind of make it a little bit broader to say a little bit of empathy for that end user and the developers. You know, if they're dealing with this blinky light does solve your problem, you need some expertise to give some insight about what problem it might actually solve, or maybe it doesn't do that at all. Kind of uh, along that line of thinking, um, to invert the question a bit, you know, before you engage in a pen test, are there maybe two or three questions that you always ask that will say, hey, are you, know, are you doing X, Y, and Z? That will give you a sense of, ah, at least somebody's doing, you know, they've got one or two things that they're doing right. This won't be easy. Or they should just be doing one or two things and come back to us when you've done that, and then we'll give you a, a better pen test. Well, I mean, it really just depends. So many clients are the same, and yet so many clients are so unique in terms of where they're at in security. And, you know, the, the most usual answer to when I try and ask any sort of question about, like, what are you already doing? What do you have deployed, et cetera, is I have no idea. I'd have to go ask somebody in engineering about that. Mm. Um, so what I, which is fine, you know, that's how it works at companies that are bigger than just a few people, you know, people actually have job roles instead of doing everything. So I'm not knocking that, but, and so I guess what I do to compensate is be really flexible. You know, if somebody, you know, manages to convince me that what they want is a pen test, but it turns out really they just need, you know, a vulnerability assessment at this point being flexible with them about, hey, this is actually, you know, we need to do this now. We can do the pin test, but, you know, I'm going to break in in two seconds and it's not really going to tell you anything. Us actually, like, you know, fixing this patch management problem and default passwords and things like that first is going to do you a lot better. And, you know, customers by and large respond to that pretty well, you know, that I'm not just taking their easy money and, and moving on. And that, you know, helps me build relationships with them as well. So. Right. Yeah. Put a bit of like risk oriented thinking into it. I think I, I want to use that as a segue too. talking about like red teaming and uh, breaking in, whether it takes two seconds or 20 seconds or maybe 20 hours. You've, I believe also participated in the collegiate cyber defense competitions. Could you talk to us a little bit, what is a cyber defense competition and what's it like working with and uh, seeing the competition amongst those teams? Well, I started out um, in the Mid-Atlantic Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition, which is put on by the CyberWatch Center. They have um, different regional ones and then they the nationals um, and there's certainly other like cyber defense competitions besides the CCDC, but this, you know, just so happened to be the one that, that I ended up in um, as a student. 
Um, so as the students have like, you know, the suckiest job. So as part of the competition, you know, we were the, the team that we basically, the premise was that the IT team had like left or something. And we were the, the replacements who were being brought into this mock business um, where the network was a disaster. You didn't really know what, what was on the network and uh, you had to keep the network up and running. Oh, it was also like actively under attack by a bunch of attackers. Um, that being the, the red team who are, um, you know, professional pen testers volunteering their time to, you know, kind of get mm-hmm. a chance to go all out uh, to be able to just like completely just, wreak havoc and you know I did it and you know it was really stressful I mean I joked that you know the real goal of the red team is to make somebody cry or vomit <laughs> it's really really stressful you know you 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 practice for months for this stuff you know you're not getting academic credit for this and you know you're spending you know all your time doing this and then you know the red team is just destroying you and you're gonna lose um but you know, I found myself completely fascinated with it. I mean, at that point, it was so early on in my career, I didn't really understand the Windows API, like, enough to understand how it was that someone who wasn't physically on my machine, like, with me, was mm-hmm. making these pop-up boxes that say, I like turtles, come <laughs> up, and they just kept happening. You know, I didn't know about remote administration tools and things like that yet, you know, it was that early on, and it, but it just... I knew I wanted to be able to do that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and so hopefully, it yeah. Worked for me, you know, I, if the goal and I, and I, you know, I had this fight with, you know, CCDC as a whole that like, you know, in terms of like who they put on the red team. Cause I've also since graduating done, done some red team stuff um, for them. And it's, you know, they, I guess kind of want to pick like the most elite people possible but I mean it, you don't really have to be that elite to hit that kind of network I mean it's vulnerable people can do it um, but I mean ultimately I, I really think it's a recruiting exercise and and thus you know your your red team and you know people that the students are going to see and hear from should be you know really diverse from a lot of different backgrounds you know mm-hmm. there should be women on it there should be people yep. of color you know so the students see that and think that could be me Right. Yeah, absolutely. Just normalizing the participation. Absolutely. But um, that is pretty cool to what you're, how you're describing, like dropping in almost like a, I think of it in terms like a live action role playing almost. Here is your scenario. Go forth. You are on a new area, underfunded, undersupported, but you've got to protect these systems. And there's some, you know, hackers out there that don't necessarily need to use some sophisticated tools to get in. Oh, it's absolutely like that. There's even like a fake CEO who like comes in and yells at you for like all the money that you're losing because (laughs) your website is down and, and you have like business injects where it's like, oh, so we've decided we want to implement SharePoint now. We need that done in the next hour. I mean, obviously it's supposed to be like, at least I hope they wouldn't want SharePoint in an hour in real life. (laughs) But, you know, it's supposed to be like condensed time. Right. But yeah, it, it's for real. It's it's legit. And I think, you know, I've done a lot of stressful things in my life, but that may have been, you know, up there. But I don't know, like maybe at times during the competition, I was like, why on earth am I putting myself through this? But, you know, on the drive back to school, you know, in silence as we're all just like dead from the experience and mm-hmm. hollow eyed, you know, I like 
say, that was probably like the coolest thing ever. And everybody on the bus who kind of agreed. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Yeah, well, I can imagine, you know, anything that's a shared experience, especially bringing in that little bit more of that uh, reality to it in the spirit of, you know, people have, well, I don't have to tell this to somebody that has not one but two startups. People have businesses to run, and it's not just about the pure protecting this one particular web server in a vacuum that just has to, you know, listen on port 443. There's actually stuff going on that needs to earn money, provide services, et cetera. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that, you know, particularly with me, you know, I went, you know, it was like I was doing talks and doing mm -hmm. trainings and it was really fast. You know, I had jobs for a little bit, but I very quickly, you know, got the, the DARPA grant and went out on my own. So I really... You know, the people that I talked to when I went to conferences, the people that I talked to all the time, pretty much, like security was, you know, what they were passionate about. Security was the most important thing. And, you know, going into, you know, the startup world and learning about business and realizing that even in a security startup, security is not the most important thing. Getting the next release out, you know, hoping it doesn't break or at least no one notices, yeah. you know, kind of on time and, and keeping your clients happy and getting like this paperwork in or else, you know, Delaware is going to like, you know, declare that you're no longer a corporation there. <laughs> I mean, there are a thousand other things that are going on. And, you know, that's also made me a much better consultant though that you know it's gotten me out of that mentality that i know that you know i'm not i know i'm not the only one that's kind of stuck in this why are you not taking security more seriously when dealing with customers but then you know it's definitely made me you know better at at what i do on the consulting side and working with companies realizing that you know it is such a small part of I mean, it's a line item that's an expense. I mean, it's not even something that's, I mean, short of them getting breached and going out of business. I mean, it's not even really anything that probably makes the top 10 list, you know? Yeah, and there's definitely, uh, underpinning this, there's definitely, especially in the, the cyber defense competition, the, the, there's that theme of competition as well as stress that you've been, uh, I think, alluding to here. Uh, but what about, outside of InfoSec, outside of technology. Because one of the things that we wanted to do in this podcast is show that people get into InfoSec from different paths. There's also many different you know, subcategories of InfoSec, but people are also actually surprised multi-dimensional. So you know, co competition and stress, what does that look like? Do you uh, have hobbies that are equally competitive and stressful? Or, or what, what's, your, what's your mental state there? Well, for a long time, um, like when I was just doing bulb security, just doing like consulting and training and traveling to conferences and, mm -hmm. and I was like when I wrote the first book and whatnot, you know, all I did was work, 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 work. That's all mm -hmm. I did. You know, occasionally I would read a book, but usually it was, you know, in the bathtub, you know, something I absolutely had to be doing in order to not smell, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, it was work all the time which would lead to these like terrible bouts of burnout where I would be like kind of incapable of doing anything except sit in front of the television and watch documentaries. So, I mean, it wasn't very healthy at all. Um, so I did, uh, when I came actually to the startup accelerator, Mach 37 that I did, you know, when I started Shavira, you know, my, 
main mobile security testing company, you know, the, the partners at Mach 37 suggested that maybe I should get a life, you know, which to hear that from startup people shows you, you know, how little of a life I had. So, you know, I rode horses when I was a kid. So that kind of seemed like, you know, the natural thing to do. You know, I'm, my accelerator was in Virginia, which is like straight up horse country. So it's like, well, I'll just go take a riding lesson. Why not? And then, you know, here we are a couple years later and my hobby has become just as stressful as my job because now I have a horse and I go to competitions and I'm always like looking at where I stand on the rankings for year end awards and, you know, <laughs> making sure that I'm like working really hard at it to do, you know, my best at the show. So I guess I'm just, you know, so type A and competitive, I'm incapable of doing anything for fun. So <laughs> I've, I've turned my hobby into my other job. <laughs> well, it sounds like, yeah, and I say competition and stress, but also sounds like it's, you know, there, there's a lot of passion really is I think another more positive way to, to explain that. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, my horse tempo, like he is seriously the only thing that keeps me going when startups get really hard and mm -hmm. they inevitably do, you know, anybody in startup life, you know, you go through this like rough stuff, you get the really highs and lows. I mean, it's, it's basically like being manic depressive, like even if you're not um, having a startup. So, you know, having, you know, that kind of unconditional love for, you know, a horse that doesn't really care whether you like totally blew that business deal or not. <laughs> you know, well, definitely <laughs> you give him carrots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> carrots. Well, when we start the horses of InfoSec, we'll definitely have to bring Tempo on because it's our uh, first guest. Oh, that would be great. You know, just his facial expressions. I swear he, you know, I tell people like he understands what we're saying. And it's like, yeah, yeah, Mr. Ed. Yeah, right. You know, but then they're like actually around him and have conversations and like, like watch how he reacts. Like he totally knows, especially when you're talking about him. Like, That's I don't know if it's, I'm sure there's like, you know, animal like psychologists or whatever you call that would be able to say that it's voice tone and gesture and stuff, but I swear it, the horse knows what I'm saying. Now I want to turn to, we started off um, talking about your book and um, obviously talking about now, you know, how busy you are with the speaking, running startups, training, all these competitive aspects, but um, kind of going back to the beginning, Within, within InfoSec, there are books, InfoSec books, but there aren't that many, I guess I would say, compared to how big the community actually is. So what inspired you to dive into writing? And, you know, what was the hook that made you want to actually, you know, put your fingers on keyboard and type something out? Well, probably one of my first ambitions was to be an author. Well, I wanted to be a novelist. I mean, I still do. I actually have a... a draft of a novel you know in a fireproof box somewhere that you know <laughs> one of these days post like startup acquisition uh, I'll get back to so you know if anybody at Doubleday or Little Brown is listening you know um, <laughs> but the, but you know the typical story you know I, I sent it out to like agents and, and publishers and you know I don't even think I got any like 
form letters that are like, well, your work, it, while it doesn't like reflect on the quality of your work, it's just not a, a good fit. You know, the typical like, you know, authors typically have like walls made up of all their rejections. You know, it's kind of yeah. like hanging your degrees upside down in your bathroom. <laughs> it's like some pretentious thing that people do. But anyway, you know, nobody wrote me back. And sometimes I kind of wonder, like, having a best-selling tech book, I wonder if maybe they would, like, actually, like, read my my submissions now. But, you know, like you said, time. Anyway, so actually getting to the, the real question. So No Starch, uh, my publisher actually came calling. Uh, they actually approached me about doing a book, which I don't I can't imagine why they did that. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> So I figured that was about as close as I was going to get to the childhood dream, you know, since, you know, nobody would write me back about my novel. So if I recall correctly, I sort of danced around my office for a few minutes and everybody thought <laughs> I was cool. nuts because I had a book deal. Little did I know that that was like the easy part, getting the book deal, you know, in that case. Um, then you, you know, actually have to write the book because I hadn't written it yet. Um, but I really wanted to write this particular book. I mean, a lot of people, when they heard that I was doing a book, mm -hmm. well, one, it was kind of like, oh, anybody can get a book deal. It's actually getting a book done, which, you know, having been through it, it's, yeah, there's actually some truth to that. But it was also, I, I think a lot of people assumed because I did mobile research that it was going to be a mobile book. Uh, uh, but I really wanted to do this one um, because when I was first getting into InfoSec, you know, I was shy. I didn't really know anyone. Things are better now. I guess there's a lot more like blog posts out there and, and YouTube mm -hmm. videos and whatnot. I mean, I'm not that old, but maybe I'm just bad at Googling. I don't know. Like you mentioned the OSCP earlier. Like when I did the OSCP, you know, I worked through the penetration testing with Backtrack manual and you know I tried to do as many of the lab boxes as possible but when I got stuck I mean there was literally a bot that said try harder and you know I get that now from a business perspective because if you help people you have to hire people to help them and that costs money you know to pay those people um, whereas a bot that says try harder is free so I mean <laughs> it's a business model that seems to work for them pretty well um, but though I did manage to pass the test, um, I, you know, barely, um, I, uh, you know, I don't feel like I got as much out of it as I could have. And, you know, it was, I didn't really feel like I was, you know, a competent, qualified pen tester coming out of that, which is, you know, at least what theoretically you're supposed to be just because, you know, I hadn't been able to figure out so many of the boxes in the lab and, you know, when I got stuck, it was just kind of like, okay, I don't even know. You know, it almost felt like having to look up every word in the dictionary and then having to look up those words in the children's dictionary, like that that was at the point I was at. And I know there's a lot of other people trying to get in the industry that, you know, don't have people to mentor them yet. So mm -hmm. I really wanted to write the book that I had wished that I had getting into it. And I mean, obviously it's worked to some extent because I, I couldn't begin to count the number of people who've written to me or come up to me at, at a signing or a con or something. And they say my book got them over the hump with the cert or it got them their first job or, you know, some other like mind altering thing that, you know, I have to kind of like block out to, you know, continue to be a human being to think that, 
you know, I can have that kind of impact on people. So, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's a fantastic way to give out, you know, give back to the community to, you know, to share that knowledge and to fill, you know, fill that void that wasn't there for you. Uh, that, that also makes me wonder, what was the thing that drew you into InfoSec? You know, where you, um, you mentioned, you know, growing up or around horses, was there, was there a different path you were on that, that before you came on to InfoSec or what was the hook there? Well, it's actually, I guess, like most things in life, a random sequence of events entirely. You know, my mother has a PhD in computer science. Cool. My, like, first sentient memory that that I can think of really is watching her, you know, in her cap and gown get her PhD, um, which, you know, is actually, if you're going to have kids, not a bad way to, like, spend that time. That's a great impression, you know? yeah. <laughs> you know, when, uh, you know, if you are going to take time off work, like, get a PhD and then stay home with your kid while you write your dissertation. So, I mean, I've, I've actually heard that that's pretty popular now. Um, and my dad's a physicist, so... I went to college early. I went when I was 14 after the eighth grade. So I still kind of had that like spite the parents thing going on that most teenagers do. So I didn't want to be a physicist or a computer scientist. But so I kind of compromised and I did math because so it was still STEM. It was still like, mm -hmm. okay, I'll pay for your college education. Because it was very much like you're not going to major in literature so you can be a writer because it's like we're not going to pay for your education if you're not going to be able to get a job, which was, you know, it made me mad at the time, but, you know, looking back on it was, it was very much the correct thing for my parents to do. Um, so I did math in undergrad and then I was gonna, you know, go get my PhD in math. I actually did the first year of it, but I guess I realized that I wasn't going to be like John Nash or Einstein or somebody and just you know, sit around doing math at like the Institute for Advanced Study and getting like Nobel Prizes and things. I was going to end up, you know, teaching math to undergrads who don't really want to be in math class, but it's a requirement. And, you know, that didn't really sound like something I wanted to do. Um, so it was either, you know, go back and live with my parents since I was, you know, like what, 17 and had a college degree, no work experience, not really qualified to do anything except graph theory. Um, or I just so happened to like get a letter in the mail that said, you know, we have this graduate program in computer science with an emphasis in security at James Madison University we would love to, you know, basically let you come here for free and give you, you know, a stipend and things. And that sounded better than having to go live with my parents again. That is pretty awesome. And then uh, math is going to come back and haunt us because I think we're getting closing down onto the uh, coming towards the end of the podcast. We're running oh, out of no, time. Oh no, this has been so fun. I know, but I, so I, I don't want to just stop there be so, and just say, you know, looking to the past, what can we look to hear, hear and see from you in the future? What do the, the next few months or the, the next year look like? And trust me, I won't ask about the deadline for the book because um, I figure your publisher is going to be bugging you about that just enough. <laughs> uh, well, luckily there is no deadline. Um, you know, deadlines are kind of like the horizon line, you know, they recede as you approach them. And, you know, that I think publishers realize that. And, you know, especially the second time around, it's, you know, they know I'm busy. But I am doing a book signing at DEF CON, so I have it on my list to at least turn in a few chapters before then. So maybe the, like, glares will be, you know, less bad. At the, at the no starch table if I turn some things in. 
but definitely, yeah, finishing up the second edition of the book and all those associated tie-ins we kind of touched on. But, you know, the other big thing, uh, you know, just growing, you know, both the businesses, you know, certainly getting, you know, more consulting clients and, and training clients, you know, which the second edition of the book will, at least on the, the uh, training side, certainly help. Um, and then, you know, for the product startup, you know, with the mobile security startup stuff, you know, just putting out new and improved versions of Shavir's products, you know, for the mobile security testing, getting more customers and going full circle with that, getting good feedback from those customers about, you know, what they'd like to see in the product to make it more useful to them. And then, then making those improvements. So, you know, really just, you know, trying to make it, you know, more mature product that helps more people and, and, you know, somehow manages to find its way through, through that esoteric art of sales and marketing, you know, into more people's hands. So yeah, that's, I guess the main two things is book and, uh, and companies. Excellent. Yes. Jumping into to the chaos sounds spoken like, and with, with a, with a good focus on, on products. So spoken like a good startup founder. I like it. Um, I, and I, you know, and I want to say thank you again for, um, you know, the, the work you've done within the community um, from that, you know, participating and helping out with that cyber defense competition, the public speaking you've done at conferences, as well as the book um, itself. So I think that's been a great contribution. So thanks for that. Uh, well, thank you. I mean, I never feel like I do enough. You know, you see all these people that like volunteer at conferences, which has got to be the hardest job imaginable or being like on the board of OWASP where they're like, they don't get paid for that, but it's like, you know, managing all this stuff. And it's, it's, you know, people, there's people that put in so much and, and, you know, mentorship, I get, you know, probably a hundred messages a day of people being like, can you mentor me? And I want to say yes to all of them, but I mean, there's only 24 hours in the day and I feel horrible about it. So I really wish I could do more. So thank you so much for, you know, saying that maybe some of what I'm doing is, is, is doing something. <laughs> yes. Well, more than happy to. I think we'll also use that to say, uh, to ask everyone who's listening to um, give a wave, say hi to Georgia, if, if and when you run into her at a book signing at a conference, as well as, you know, say thank you to one of the conference organizers or somebody who's sitting on the board of one of the organizations as part of the, uh, you know, the InfoSec community. That'd be great. Yeah, I, I absolutely, yeah, if you see me at a talk or a signing or, or anything like that, or, you know, hit me up on, on social media. If I don't reply, it's that I missed it, so hit me up again, um, you know. But yeah, I definitely, I, I try to answer, you know, questions and things, so I, I try and be, you know, if I'm not being, like, approachable, it's not that I'm a snob, it's that... I sometimes have social anxiety, so it's, you know, not to be cliche, but it's not you, it's me. <laughs> we understand. Well, and, and thank you for taking that time out of that busy schedule to talk to us. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we are out of time, but we appreciated you listening to us um, talk to Georgia Wiedemann about her background and her journey through uh, writing, consulting, speaking. Thank you again for having me on. This has been a great experience. Thanks.
Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt. We're a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening.